Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Dina Weibel, who is a professor of anthropology in the anthropology department and religious studies program at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. Dr. Weibel has varied interests that some intersect with my own interests, which is very fascinating in terms of fieldwork in France and pilgrimage sites in France. And we're going to be talking about her book called A Sacred Vertigo, Pilgrimage and Tourism in Racomador, France. So in addition to this book, you have been um, an anthropologist of religion for a couple of decades, and your work has focused on the intersection of, of religion and anthropology, spirituality, pilgrimage, and most recently space. Uh, and space pilgrimage. And so I'm looking forward to talking to you about that in a future episode. Today, we'll be talking about the book that was published. Was it published in 2022 or 2023? 2022, okay. early on. Okay. We'll be posting uh, a profile pic. So you'll be able to see this beautiful site on as a profile pic. And I'd like to start by asking you to orient us to what the site is and and very basic information about the site. Where is it located in France? Kind of some history, uh, chronology sure. of, of how this came to be a pilgrimage site. Sure, okay. So Rocamadour geographically is in the department of France known as the Lot, L-O-T. And the best way I've thought of if you're familiar with France at all, if you were to go north from Toulouse and stop when you were parallel to Bordeaux, that's about where you are. The largest, largest town nearby is Caux, which is C-A-H-O-R-S. And it's not too far from uh, Brive-la-Gaillard. And but Toulouse is probably the largest thing in the general region. It's part of Occitanie, um, that region before France got its normal, you know, its current political borders. And um, it's been a shrine since at least the 11th century. That's where we start to see written records of it. So um, there was a papal bull that, um, I won't go into the historical details because I'm not a historian, but a papal bull that allowed one group of monks to take over the shrine from a different group of monks and that's the first time we see a written record of it. And then um, it became very, very popular in the 11th and 12th centuries. Our Book of Miracles was written, which is like the next written record we have of it. And by that time, it was getting lots and lots of pilgrims, enough that the valley um, underneath the cliff, and it's, I should say it's built on the side of a cliff. It is in three levels. The bottom level touching the bottom of the Alzu Canyon has got shops and restaurants and some houses. Then there's a great staircase, Le Conde d'Escalier, that takes you to the church courtyard, the Parvis, and that's where seven different chapels and churches are. Some of them literally built against the cliff face, with the cliff face itself being the fourth wall. And then there is a Way of the Cross, the Stations of the Cross, that takes you up to the top of the cliff, and that's where there is a castle. The castle is kind of a weird hybrid. It's got um, 13th century or 14th century ramparts, 
but they redid the entire castle in the 19th century. So it's kind of a mishmash of styles, but looks very impressive. So what you see is this castle on top of a cliff and then buildings clinging to the cliff all the way down. I think I was reading, uh, I, I want to say in the 12th century, um, this uh, book of miracles. Uh, is that when it was something like 1164? That sounds right. I think 1164 was when they found the body of St. Amadour, which was kind of a back formation. So it was a strange situation where they had this statue of um, a Black Madonna, a wooden statue that looked like it had once been plated with silver, black in color by that time from smoke or tarnish or depending on who you talk to because of other reasons having to do with um, not the Catholic Church. And... Um, then you had the the series of pilgrims coming during that time period, but there was an expectation during that time period that, that you would have a saint, right? You needed to have some part of a saint to create the, the sacred place. And when a local villager wanted to be buried in the church courtyard, they went to dig him or a grave and they found a body and the body was mummified. <clears throat> it was a very short person. They decided that since the body had not decomposed, it must be the body of a saint. And through back formation, created sort of this legend of Saint Amador. So Rocamadour can be understood in two ways in terms of its etymology. One is Roca, a large cliff, Majur, meaning large, right, a major rock. Um, but the other is after they found this body, they began using um, separate etymology, Hulk. Amadur and Amadur it sounds like Amator in Latin. It means lover. So the idea was that this was a cliff that had been the home of this lover of the Virgin Mary in a purely, you know, worshipful sense. Um, he'd been a hermit. The cliff itself is kind of concave and has sort of a shelter built into it. And so the notion that became popular during that time period was that this body they found had been a hermit, probably somebody from the Bible, who had come to France after the crucifixion, escaping persecution as a Christian, and had set up this veneration of the Virgin Mary in the shelter of this cliff, and had died there and because of his saintliness had not decomposed. There is also an ancient bell that is uh, supposed to ring when sailors are saved at sea who um, call on the Virgin Mary to save them. And the bell and the statue are the two like oldest artifacts that have not been carbon dated, but seem to have been around for more than a thousand years. After spending quite a bit of time in France and part of my work is focused on what happens underground in the and I mean there are these former quarries or caves or you know the the uh it seems like what occurs subterranean is almost as important in some cases more important than what is happening above ground uh can you place this particular site even though it is above ground but it's in, kind of inset into uh the rock and there is an underground part can you place this into the context of the larger framework for sacred sites that are beneath the ground or within the earth that occur across France? 
I haven't ever tried to do that, actually. So um, I've more been focused on the notion that it is sort of rising up into the sky, as it were. So I've been looking more at the uh, above rather than the below. I know that in the same region, there's a cave that was discovered, I think, in the 1920s, that's been named uh, Le Crote des Merveilles, the Cave of Wonders, which has prehistoric cave paintings. And it's very small, um, but significant in terms of prehistoric people. And the only other thing that comes to mind, too, is there's the Gouffre de Padirac, which is part of the same tourism network in the area, which is a very deep underground river where you can go on a boat cruise um, down and up and down this river, which is very impressive to do so. Um, and they've done a great job creating a very unique experience there. But I'm less familiar with um, a pattern of worship at least in that region that's underground. If we're looking straight to the title of your book and looking at this concept uh, of vertigo, can you explain why you chose to utilize that term in the title and what does the what happens for pilgrims um, that that you noticed either yourself as a pilgrim uh, in your own sort of auto-ethnographic work or for other pilgrims that results in this sense of vertigo? There's a couple things going on. Um, number one, the shrine or the town itself, because it's a town, it's over the winter, it's only got, at least while I was there, fewer than 70 people that were permanent residents. But the town itself is built up and down this cliff. So whereas other people might say, you know, go left or right, go east or west, go toward the mountains or toward the sea. In Rocamadour, everything is about up and down. So it's en haut and en bas, above and below. And the the verticality of the place is infused in how people live. It's infused with the tourist experience. It really makes a difference. It, it defines how things happen there because it's just so vertical. And when I was there, it's interesting because there are cliffs all over the place. It's a canyon, Alzu Canyon, with cliffs on either side. But when you are there, not during tourist season, when it's quiet, there are different things that happen that are a little eerie. You can hear people who are quite distant very clearly. And it seems to be something to do with the property of sound bouncing off rocks and traveling in ways that are sort of unexpected. There's also, how do I put this? When you are at the top of the cliff, there's always an awareness that you could fall. Um, there's a strong sense and the way that the places that people go when they visit the site out onto the ramparts or along the the kind of ledges that are out in front of the churches, you can look down. And when you look down, it really is this just fall into a gaping void. You're really quite high up. And it's impressive, especially with the way that it leans slightly forward. So there's always the fear of falling. On the other hand, when you're at the bottom, whether you're in the canyon where there's a lot of hiking and people will do um, different kinds of activities at the bottom of the cliff and there's hotels, restaurants. If you look up, you have this cliff that's not just straight up, but actually sort of leaning toward you. In a way, it's 
it's reminiscent of being in a place like New York City where you look above your head and you've got these tall skyscrapers, but there's something about how organic it is, that it's not man-made, but it has these man-made buildings on it and the leaning forward feeling. It almost feels like things could fall on you and things do fall on people. Um, I knew people who had uh, their cars parked that had boulders and things to fall down. Regularly, they had workers come while I was there who would put netting along the cliff and try to remove any loose rocks. And the spookiest thing that I never saw in real life but heard about and had a nightmare about was snakes falling from the top and landing on people unexpectedly below. I did also, um, once when I was going up the Stations of the Cross, which is kind of a zigzag straight up the cliff, there was a dog who fell off and went about two levels down and hit where I was hiking with some friends. And um, dog was okay. The people, you know, ran down and were able to retrieve it, but it was a very scared dog. And so there's this constant awareness that you could fall, that things could fall, that things are up, that things, you know, you, it, the verticality defines it and it's part of the thrill of it. And there were pilgrims who fell down the great staircase who were injured. It was this, constant awareness even the book of miracles speaks of um the virgin mary getting angry at people for doing things like hunting on the sabbath and casting their dogs off the cliff or people jumping off the cliff so it figures into both the lived experience and the mythology of the place very well you you spoke very nicely in your book about the space being contested. And you said that it is totally secular, far too expensive, important because the Virgin Mary seems to be present there, a site of powerful telluric energy, a likely hiding place of the Holy Grail, a far inferior site to the more popular pilgrimage site of Lourdes, much more authentic than other sites, ridiculous for trying to portray itself as a real pilgrimage center, the locale where Mary Magdalene sought exile after the crucifixion of Christ, and a site where a pre-Christian goddess was once worshipped by pagans. How did you arrive at this statement? I will say the whole statement doesn't work as a single statement. Um, This is taught from talking to people, talking to pilgrims, talking to the locals who live there. So France, as you know, doing work in France, is got a lot of atheists. It's got a very kind of secular perspective. At the same time, it has a very long tradition of Christianity, of Catholicism. There are pre-Christian leanings, and every sacred site I went to, especially not just Rocamadour, but also uh, Montsegur and Carcassonne, a very strong kind of neo-pagan slash new age energy focused group of people who understand the landscape in this way that incorporates ideas of energy that maybe aren't measurable by contemporary scientific means. And I remember one afternoon just talking to people um, as I was sitting outside one of the shops, asking them what brought them there. And so there are people who are completely secular, who think it's this amazing beautiful place where you can see architecture that doesn't seem to make sense. How did people in the 
1400s and 1300s build like this. They didn't have modern equipment. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have cranes. How did this happen? And the idea that people had such religious faith is moving to even the non-religious. Then you have folks who believe that this is a node of energy, where people exchange energy with the earth, where there is this flow of a Telluric River that emerges at Rocamador and causes people to feel things and have strange sensations. And it either makes you extremely peaceful and evolves your soul or makes you argue. I mean, there were all kinds of different things I was hearing from it. And then you have the traditional Catholics for whom this is one of the earliest places that Mary was worshipped in France or venerated, whether that her relationship with her son was forged here, that Mary's job as an intercessor, that this is one of the places where people talked to her, got her to help with expeditions, help with shipwrecks, help with a healing, and that it's older than Lourdes. And Lourdes was sort of, you know, kind of took a little bit of the glow 600 years later and hasn't given it back. And so it's it's a place of contradictions. And really one of the things I tried to argue was that what people bring with them and what they're expecting shapes what they experience there, but that there are also elements of the location itself, such as the cliff, such as the verticality, such as the um, the buildings that shape how people respond. And the vertigo thing, um, I had a friend who came to visit. She couldn't go out on those ramparts. She went on them and began trembling so violently that she had to go back down because the fear of falling was so strong. The nuns also would say things to me like, you know, we'd be out chatting and I'd look up and they mentioned, you know, you look up, you get this reverse vertigo. And that was the first time I'd heard of reverse vertigo, where you almost feel like you're going to fly up and be lost in the heavens. It's just this strange sensation. And that's why I chose the photograph I did for the cover of the book to kind of highlight just the way that the physical sensations of being in this place. There are other places built on mountains. There's Meteora, for instance, where you have all these mesas with monasteries on them, but it's not quite the same thing as having the buildings literally attached to the face of the cliff and having to go up and down the face of the cliff rather than just what's on top. I would be one of those people that would be panicking. (laughs) (laughs) I do not like heights and the sense of reverse vertigo. I can certainly, it is very readily available to my kind of experiential knowledge, even with very tall buildings. So I probably will not be up on ramparts at this site anytime <laughs> soon. However, I'm very interested to go visit after reading your your book about this. Um, so I heard you talk about that there are nuns. And so is there a, there's a, has, has there been a continuous religious order for centuries, or is this a new iteration, uh, or it's, there are just nuns visiting? It's an it's an iteration. So um, the nuns are based in a nearby town called Grama, G-R-A-M-A-T, and they're members of the order of um, it's Notre Dame de Calvaire, Our Lady of Cavalry, Calvary, Calvary. There we go. I always do that. Um, and they were set up in the 1800s during the kind of resurgence of Roca Madura, basically it 
was this amazing 12th century shrine, but it got sacked during the Hundred Years' War. There was a lot of Protestant Catholic fighting that um, the shrine suffered during. It fell into disrepair. It was basically ruins for quite a long time, but pilgrims would still come. And then when uh, Lourdes became so popular in the 1800s and the pilgrimage at Houdebac in Paris, where there were these, you know, visions of the Virgin Mary, the locals decided that it made sense to kind of bring it back. And it may have been a financial decision, a religious decision, the idea that it was really important to pay attention to Mary in the 19th century, but they um, rebuilt it and it became very popular, especially as things like roads and automobile travel and train travel all increased in Roquemador or in France. And then Roquemador kind of got the benefit of that. So the nuns were set up to provide um, lodging for pilgrims once the pilgrimage was back in the swing of things. And so they have a house that is on the middle level of the cliff. It is um, called Lucantu, which in Occitan means the fireside or the hearth. And it is quite a large stone house. They occupy um, some parts of it, and there's the shrine inside at the bottom that the nuns use. They have a garden. But the attic is built into eight different apartments, and these are cells from the perspective of somebody who's never stayed in one. So if you are coming from the perspective of a hotel, the idea that you've got a little twin bed and a little closet in the sink seems pretty modest with a bathroom down the hall. But pilgrims who are making their way um, to Rocamadour, especially those who have veered off the uh, the Camino de Santiago, I always want to say it in French, Le Chemin de Saint-Jacques, um, they veer off, and for them, I mean, this is like spacious, world-class accommodation. You have your own bed, you have a door that closes, you have your own sink. And so sharing a kitchen, sharing a bathroom is definitely worth the privacy that you get there. Um, each room has either a window or a skylight, and so there's definitely, it's, it's a nice place for people to come and be sheltered. So they've been operating that throughout the 20th century into the 21st century, um, pilgrims would be referred to them. They would meet people. And when I first went there in 20, no, sorry, 1995 um, and met the nuns, we hit it off. I was invited back for lunch after a mass that I attended. And they told me that if I wanted to do field work there, I could stay in one of those um, rooms. And so I spent many months of my life living in one of those little rooms which meant that my take on pilgrimage was from the center where pilgrims were coming um, rather than from the road, for instance. And I did a lot of interviews in that shared kitchen or in, you know, the guest area that they had there. There also um, was a place for pilgrims to stay if they came in groups, like if an entire uh, diocese came on pilgrimage, they would be able to set that up um, up in the castle. And so for a while, there was a castle where the priests who lived on site would host groups of pilgrims and like their own guests sometimes up there. But a lot of the individual pilgrims who were coming just for Rocamador or as part of the Camino would stay with the nuns. How did you become interested in this site? <laughs> well, it's a combination of things. Um, 
I was always interested in religion because I did not grow up in a religious household. And so it's like if you're the kid without the bicycle, you become obsessed with your friend's bikes. I didn't have a religion, so I became obsessed with my friend's religion. And um, I became very interested in graduate school at what effect it would have on a local population if you had a sacred place in your midst. And I realized later that it's probably because I grew up four miles from Disneyland. So um, I was always sort of in one of these places where people were coming and people from all over the world were going to come into something in my backyard. And I thought that was amazing growing up. And so I think that's kind of what drew me. I was thinking in graduate school, as an anthropologist, there's sort of this expectation that you're going to go to a part of the world that is very much unlike your own community. And so I had been thinking about different regions of the world, but my doctoral chair, David K. Jordan, had a postcard of Rokumador that he picked up the previous summer, and he put it in, I talked to him about wanting to study a shrine or a religious site, and he put this in my um, department mailbox, and I pulled this out and saw this amazingly beautiful town on the side of a cliff, and I went to him and I said, you know, I, I've had four years of French and a couple more years in college. Um, you know, six years of French so far, I never thought about France. Can you do can you do anthropology in France? And he looked at me very seriously and said, are there people in France? <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> All right, then you can do anthropology in France. And so um, I got a small grant from the Seroptimist Society of La Jolla, which is now the Doris um, Howell Foundation. And it was to study issues in women's health. I went to Lourdes. And spent 10 days um, asking pilgrims at Lourdes questions about the water that they were getting and what they were going to do with it and how they thought it would help. And then I made a side trip to Rocamadour and met my nuns and ended up having this long period of study there. Um, it was really a life-changing meeting. What was life-changing about it? Just the idea that I found my um, research area that I was able to do research in a place that had not been extensively studied by anthropologists before. It had a large historical um, setting. I mean, a lot of historians have studied Rosamador, but the contemporary pilgrimage and what was going on in, for me, the late, very late 20th century and then into the 21st century, that was not something that had been the focus of any, you know, extended research before. So it allowed me to kind of create my path as an academic and get my doctoral dissertation out there and continue doing this research. Yeah, cough, sorry. <clears throat> and um, then I was, you know, able to put, like you said, decades of work together and fortunately for me, see it um, in a longitudinal way that allowed me to really notice and observe changes that were occurring over time at this one location. So you talked about earlier the the impact or the experiences of local people who are living at a sacred site or sacred shrine or pilgrimage center. And what have you learned about the people who are living there? I've learned that they're in kind of a catch-22 situation. Rocamadour has become a tourist attraction as much as a shrine, more so than a shrine. So 
Rocamadour doesn't just have the shrine. It has the monkey forest, which is literally a troop of Barbary macaques that were brought there in the 1970s. And that became a place where you could go feed popcorn to monkeys. Um, it does other things. It's like they do, you know, biological research and, and conservation efforts and stuff. Because that one was really successful, somebody else built Eagle's Rock, which is kind of the same thing, but for raptors and birds of prey. Like, okay, so you've got that. You have the um, the train, ferry train. You have all of these different things that become these sort of tourist attractions. If any of your listeners have been to Southern California, they'll know there are major tourist attractions, but then little ones that kind of accumulate around them. And that's kind of what this is like. Um, and over time, over the decades, a town that had its own grocery store, its own butcher, its own hardware store, um, that stopped being useful sources of income. And everybody, almost everybody works in tourism. And so if you are there in the dead of winter and you want to have something to eat, you have to go those five miles or so to Gramont to get groceries. There is not a place where you can buy food. There is not a place where you can buy tools. There's not a place where you can buy implements for your garden. It has become a town that exists for tourism and nothing else. And this means at least in my experience, the people there are lovely, but everybody is reliant on tourism. Everybody is, um, I knew one lady who uh, cleaned people's houses. She wasn't reliant so much on tourism, but everybody else owns stores or the people who own the stores let them out. And so people will come there seasonally to um, sell things and then close up for the winter. Most of the town is closed during the winter, but there's uh, there was a comedy club, there's tea shops and restaurants and hotels, but nothing, there's a school. But aside from the school, there's really not much you would expect to see in a small French town. There's not a regular bakery that's around you around. You know, the normal things that you would expect to see in France aren't there. And it's kind of like a town that has adapted to a certain income and a certain way of life aware that if the tourism stops, Rocamadour just, at least its current iteration, it would stop completely. Although I do think that if that happened, over time, people would start coming to it again because it is so striking and so beautiful and something that you can't, you can't see anything like it anywhere else. So I think it's got a built-in audience and will always have people coming there. It's just, it could do another cycle where it fell into ruins and then came back again. Over the past couple of decades, um, since you started your work in this in this area, have you noticed trends? I'm thinking, um, in particular, a a trend uh, towards more pilgrims or people who are uh, categorizing themselves as pilgrims versus people who are coming as tourists. Or has this not been uh, impacted um, this site? I think what I've noticed is not so much that the proportion of tourists to pilgrims has changed since the late 90s. I think it's, I don't have exact numbers, but if I had to, first of all, then you have the question, what's the tourist, what's the pilgrim? If I'm there as a tourist and then I have this amazingly religious moment in the shrine, am I still a tourist? Or if I'm a pilgrim and I decide I'm going to go to the comedy club and get some ice cream, am I still a pilgrim? 
you know, the, the, the way that those are fuzzy um, distinctions is really apparent with Rosemador. But I think most people whose intention is secular, I would have to guess above, you know, 85, 90%, maybe even higher. Um, for the pilgrims, they tend to be folks who, in the past, used to be coming to Rocamadour itself as pilgrims. And one thing that I noticed as time passed was people coming there as a stop while doing the Camino de Santiago and not even realizing it was a shrine in its own right. And so you would have people who went to Conk, apparently the monks at Conk are some of the biggest promoters of Rocamadour. They tell people, you know, oh, while you're in that area, you need to check out Rocamadour. So they go and they settle in and they are with the nuns and it's lovely. And, oh, there's a black Madonna here. There's a shrine here. I didn't know. Well, I guess I'll go to mass. And kind of like they're taking time off from pilgrimage, but then they realize that it's still a shrine and they have to put their pilgrim, you know, uniform back on and go back out and interact with the shrine. I had some people who knew it was a religious site who were angry about the tourism, but the people who seemed to enjoy it the most were pilgrims who came through in the off season when there weren't a lot of tourists. So anytime before May or after October, who got to see the shrine sort of on its, their, on their own terms without being surrounded by throngs of, of people and kids and dogs and everything you'll see in a French tourist site. I'd like to go back and talk about Black Madonnas mm-hmm. and have you explain a bit more in depth about for listeners who may not be familiar with what a Black Madonna is, and then also place this site and this Black Madonna in the context of the larger Black Madonna phenomena that are okay. um, that, that occur in this area of the world. So once again, I'm, I'm talking like an anthropologist and not a historian. So I'm really going to be focusing on what I've been told by people. I'll start with the Catholic perspective that I've been told. Talking to monks or priests, talking to nuns, what are these Black Madonnas? What do they mean? There's a very practical, and you've probably seen this too, French relig- members of the clergy tend to be like really kind of practical and straightforward and not really very mystical in a lot of ways. And so what I was told was, yeah, if you have an older church, it's going to have a statue of the Virgin Mary that has been exposed to candle smoke. It's been exposed to um, tarnish from silver. It's been exposed to incense smoke. It's going to get dirty. It's going to get black and kind of gummy. And so when you see one of these black Madonnas, what it means is that this is a really old church. This church is worth taking seriously because it's been there a really long time. This is one that you can trust. And I was told that some newer churches trying to kind of get that uh, same, to sell themselves as being just as good as some of the other churches would actually paint their Madonna's dark colors in order to make them seem older. So from that perspective, the Black Madonna phenomenon is just sort of an accident. Um, another person um, I talked to who was at the shrine, and I used a pseudonym for her throughout most of my work, but she said if I ever cite her on this one, I have to use her real name, um, Heather Buttery. She believed that there is a, in the Bible, there's a line that a shadow went over the face of Madonna, the Madonna. This is when she was talking to Gabriel. And that the depiction of the shadow going across the face of the Madonna is why these statues are black. So those are like two Catholic perspectives. Um, when I would talk to the neo-pagan folk, 
the folks who are more into kind of new age or energy ideas, often for them, especially in neo-pagan and Wiccan circles, the pre-Christian idea of Europe as being a place where different gods and goddesses, goddesses especially, were venerated. And that fertility goddesses, often because dark earth was considered to be more fertile, you would make a statue of a woman in a black or dark color to indicate that fertility. And so you have the full history of, you know, pantheistic pre-Christian religions that existed. And the idea there being that Sibel was worshipped there. Perhaps other goddesses were worshipped there. And that by having the Christians come and convert the locals, you would take a statue of an older entity and make it resemble, you know, turn it into a Christian symbol or make sure the Christian symbols looked like the older symbols. And the priest who sort of sponsored my research, I was there on a Fulbright. And so my sponsor at the um, Catholic University of Toulouse was uh, Jean Rubachet. And he told me, he said, oh, yeah, it's a throne of wisdom. It's a classic pose. There's nothing pagan about the statue. That's how they did the Virgin Mary during that time period. And so um, I think he's right. But at the same time, when I look at a picture of Isis, especially I, there's a kind of a classic one that they have in Fijak, which is nearby, um, which is where um, the translator of the Rosetta Stone, Champollion, was born. The statue of Isis with Horus on her lap, the pose of Isis, the the way that she's sitting, the length and color of that statue looks an awful lot like Our Lady of Rocamador. And the Our Lady of Rocamador statue is carved out of wood, and it's not a beautifully intricate, realistic-looking statue. Instead, there's something almost crude about it, like Somebody took an axe and hammered out, you know, this image of a woman seated with a child. The arms are very thin. The back is very straight. The face is very rugged looking. This is not a beautiful Madonna. And um, because of that, it's almost like she has a cult following. And that I just realized it's a terrible pun. But um, it, there are people, especially in neo-pagan circles, where... This is the Black Madonna that they love the most because this is the one that looks the most like she's not trying to be pretty. She's just, you know, she's just being a woman and being a mother and doing her job as this very practical form of divinity. And it that, that is something that really draws people to that statue in particular. Even some of the um, poems by one of the priests who was there was uh, he would write poems. He would talk about her, the crudeness of that statue in a very affectionate way. And I think there's something about that statue because of that that does make it stand out very much from the rest of the Black Madonnas that are associated with France and Spain and that region. When I was looking uh, through through your book to prepare for today, I was struck by the whole goddess worship that predates Christianity, but then also the imagery and the embodiment of feminine energy, which I have seen repeatedly in my own field work in France, you know, tied to Joan of Arc, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and then even into looking at 
this idea of the French mother during World War One and post World War One, and and sort of how commemoration of the war occurred, and then how these pilgrimage sites developed were very much around this feminine French mother motif. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you see this as well um, in your decades of fieldwork in France. If you do, you bump into this obviously at this site, but do you do you see it in other places that you have been? Um, the veneration of women, I think so. I think, or you know, this idea of a divine feminine or um, sort of a, a icon of femininity. Um, the platonic ideal of the woman and the mother, I think to a certain extent, I mean, when you were talking about that, one of the thoughts I had was the story of Dom Carcasse, Lady Carcasse in Carcassonne, who was sort of the leader there when they were under siege. And she, when I was there with a student, we found a really interesting book that was for children, but talking about sort of her cleverness at overcoming, you know, the siege that she was held under. I think there is obviously some of what is coming from the history is, you know, the troubadours and this sort of idea of women being above men in terms of morality. But um, I don't know. It's an interesting question. In Roque Madur, certainly both Catholics and neo-pagan folks see the divine feminine as important, although they come at it from different ways. And the idea that she is a mother, she's being depicted as a mother, is important. But it's it's an interesting thing. I, I'd have to look at it a little bit differently. And I don't think that that was something that I was noticing as much when I was doing my field work there. I'm curious. I mean, we've we've talked about the different types of of pilgrims who are coming, the different types of of tourists and how all kinds of people view the site. Can you give a few examples of what people do when they're at the site? What, what types of uh, rituals or activities do they engage in while they're there? Okay, so we're not talking about the tourists, right, who are there to get a really nice dinner and some ice cream and look at the monkeys. What we're talking about are, um, from a Catholic perspective, there are obviously different ways that people would come. They'd come individually. They would come as groups. But one of the more important things that's traditional, not everybody does this, is climbing up the um, Grand Escalier, the Great Staircase, on their knees. And it, I'm smiling because one of the times that I first saw this happen, first of all, it was a couple that were going up very slowly, praying the rosary on each step. So you would kneel, you would pray the rosary, stand, kneel on the next step pray, you know, the rosary continues through that. And um, when I talked to them at the end, it turned out that they were definitely in the energy new age camp, even though they were the most traditional pilgrims that I'd seen practice that ritual. Um, Once I saw a group of Catholic school age kids who were on a pilgrimage and they didn't know how to do it apparently correctly according to the nun that I was with because they were on their knees racing up the stairs as fast as they could and one of the nuns that I call her Sister Lucie in the book she's like that is too painful God does not want you to do anything that painful they need to slow that down somebody needs to tell them how to do that better 
So the idea that they were suffering by doing that bothered her quite a bit. Um, I did talk to one woman who was elderly. She made the entire trip up the stairs on her knees. It takes about an hour and a half. And then she went into the shrine. And when she came out, I asked if I could talk to her. And she was the grandmother to a young man who lost his father. And he was trying to become a police officer and was having trouble passing the necessary tests. And so she was there making this sort of sacrificial climb on her knees for an hour and a half to sort of give something in exchange for him being allowed to pass those exams and become a police officer. And she was very moved by the experience and being able to do that. So that's one of the main rituals that um, I've seen there. Another one that has some similarities is they have processions different times of the year. Um, May, they will sometimes do this. Um, they'll also do, there's a marial week that takes place in September and the processions are frequent. And then um, the day of the um, assumption in August. And the idea is a replica of the Virgin Mary statue will be taken in a litter. Four people carry it. Each person gets a corner of it. It's taken through um, the, the bottom part of the town past all the tourist shops. I got the attention of the bishop one year who decided that as an American, I really needed to be part of this particular ceremony. So I had one corner of it and I'm walking through and I'm noticing tourists on the side of the road some are interested and some are just like as offended as they could be that something was interfering with their secular vacation you know here's these crazy religious people carrying the statue through the town um when we got to the staircase we climbed and there were prayers but there wasn't kneeling except every time we hit a landing and i didn't know we were going to be kneeling but the gentleman across from me holding the opposite end of the litter Every time we got to a landing, he would fall to his knees and the rest of us were like, whoa, you know, we fell to our knees because there was no alternative. <laughs> and by the time we got to the top, we knew when we were going to do that. But it took kind of a while to get up there and was quite an interesting experience. Other people were behind me, like you would see, or behind us, like you'd see at Lourdes, carrying um, these candles that have kind of the paper shades with the lyrics to, um, our Lady of Welcome the Door. They do this in Lourdes as well, with Our Lady of Lourdes. And so the procession was a ritual that I would see frequently. And then like any Catholic shrine, um, the, the candles, lighting the candles in the chapel, especially the chapel for the Black Virgin. There's also like every place else, a place to write uh, prayer intentions. So some of it was very traditional, but uh, occasionally if people were not Catholic, there were things that would take place that were forms of worship that were not considered to be in catechism. So people praying to the cliffs, for instance. Um, and when I was with the group of Wiccans that I traveled with for a week, they gathered under the cliffs and were drawing energy from the earth into their feet, up through the tops of their heads into the sky, then back down again. And um, water was dripping from the cliff above them and kind of hitting us. And they were kind of working that dripping into the prayer as they recited it. Um, 
I remember one of the things they likened it to, and I was a little shocked at the time, was menstrual blood. But it was part of this idea of the divine feminine. And if water, the liquid is falling on you, you know, that's one of the more feminine liquids. Um, and so bringing in that idea of divinity into the worship as well. What I found really interesting, though, was how often the traditional Catholic shrine rituals would be co-opted and reimagined by people who were coming from neo-pagan or Wiccan backgrounds. I think I'm beginning to see a trajectory for you in, in why you may have turned your attention towards space uh, after spending so much time <laughs> looking up. I can imagine you were having a lot of thoughts about what is even beyond the cliff and what, so I guess, yeah, I'm envisioning you being at the bottom and you're continuously asking questions about what is up there and what am I looking at? Um, and maybe that's not how it happened, but I could see how easily this could be the transition into then questions about how people uh, experience spirituality beyond the earth. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. Part of it is that I moved to Grand Rapids when I got hired at Grand Valley State and very quickly met my husband-to-be, who was a former historian for NASA. So <laughs> I had like a really nice uh, insight into that culture once I um, got to know him. But part of it was the idea of people's relationship to the cliff and something so much bigger than you. What does it do? Ideas of the sublime. Um, my mom came to Roca Madura and she's not a religious person but when she looked at the cliff from across the canyon she said I don't know I just feel something and I thought well if somebody as secular as she is is having what seems like quite a real spiritual experience what does that do and so the ideas of view a lot of the work that I do about space has to do with looking at vistas, looking at views, or being a very small thing next to a very large thing, and what that does to people internally in terms of awe and um, and being trying to process things that are very difficult to comprehend. And I think in some ways, being at Rocamadour and being this very small person up against this very large cliff, or seeing this amazing sight those things have influenced the way that um, my research went into sort of space exploration as well. So why did you decide to publish your monograph now? Uh, it seems like it's been, well, it's been decades. Uh, you've been working on it. And so uh, what, what was the impetus for releasing this out for the rest of us to read at this point? I was really interested in a lot of things, but one of the things, I mean, I'd published on it before, but just, you know, book chapters and articles and the kinds of things you do. But every time I went back, things were changing. And so one of the things I really wanted to capture in a book was, for one thing, how religiosity in France has changed since the mid-1990s. And um, if you notice, like, nearer the end of the book, I talk about how the priests who were there when I first started my research kind of capitulated a little bit to tourism and realized that this is the lifeblood of this particular location. So we're going to let tourism sort of hold sway. Um, by the time I wrap up the, the period I'm looking at in the book, there was a very um, relatively young, I won't say very, but he actually had hair that still had color in it. 
Um, he was youngish and charismatic and funny and social media savvy and also part of this sort of charismatic Catholicism that has become increasingly popular in France and is often tied to conservative viewpoints. And so it was interesting for me to see priests and nuns in the 1990s who had been part of the sort of Vatican II, hippie influence, May 1968, France kind of thing, being moved over by folks who were, this one priest in particular, I call him Father Tristan in my book, just in part because he's sort of romanticized and from a royal family. And, um, but he was, definitely more conservative, definitely trying to return the church to some pre-Vatican II um, things, the way that communion was taken, for instance, he would return to a more traditional form of that, trying to bring um, elements of charismatic Christianity into Catholicism, where, especially as a youth pastor, having students that traveled with him experiencing the Holy Spirit in a way that was causing a lot of gossip among the older nuns and causing people to be a little bit concerned about um, what he was doing. You have been working on this topic uh, and doing field work and going back and forth between the U.S. and France for several decades and have published on various parts of this work. Why did you decide at this point was a good time to to publish uh, the the monograph in its entirety? I think uh, the main thing was that after I initially finished my dissertation research, um, I had actually sought out a publisher then, and it just hadn't worked out. And then I ended up getting hired at Grand Valley State. And soon I was taking students out with me. I was able to do that a couple of times. And I was finding, much to my uh, fascination, that the way that it was, that Rocamadour was being run as a shrine, particularly by the clergy, was changing in really unexpected ways. And so I really decided it was going to be important to follow those shifts in how things were going. So, <clears throat> for instance, um, first time I was there in the late 90s, the person who was the rector there was very willing to compromise, at least uh, eventually willing to compromise with the merchants and um, the people who were involved in tourism. So one of the things that he wanted to do initially was prevent people in the church courtyard from being Wearing shorts, he thought that was too immodest. He didn't want people to bring dogs through the church courtyard. And he didn't want trash cans out in the church courtyard. And all of those sound reasonable unless you think about the configuration of Rocamadour, which is built on the side of a cliff. The church courtyard is literally halfway down. And so unless people pay to take an elevator, there are two elevators, both of them cost money, um, considerable amount of money, especially for a family the idea that you couldn't pass through the church courtyard would mean that you couldn't either go up the cliff or down the cliff. You'd have to stay at the bottom or the top. So there was tremendous pushback. And this tremendous pushback eventually led to him saying, okay, people can wear shorts, people can have dogs, but you can't have any trash cans in the church courtyard. 
And I remember talking to people after that decision had been made and the people who worked in the pilgrimage store, which sold, you know, rosaries and books and church things. um, And also the people in the museum that was located there said it was a pain because they would have people going into their building all the time, not wanting to buy anything or purchase tickets, but to use the trash can because there weren't any apparent on the outside. But as time went by, things began to shift. And I talk about this in my book quite a bit. There was a treasurer for the diocese who became kind of focused on Rocamadour as a way that tourism and pilgrimage could be united. And so um, I use his real name in the book because he's deceased and a lot of this was discussed openly in the press in France. But um, this particular treasurer priest, he first wanted to update the museum. This was in the 1990s. Spent a lot of money turning it from a kind of rustic local museum into something with glass and different lighting systems and music. And the idea was that people were going to spend a lot of money there and it was going to draw people into Morocamadour. It cost a lot of money and nobody went. The ticket prices went up and it was considered to be kind of a, a money hole kind of situation, like a lost you know, sunken cost kind of thing. And he didn't give up at that point. I think I mentioned to you that the castle at the top was a place where diocesans, I can never say that word, pilgrims from dioceses (laughs) would come and stay as groups. And he thought, well, it would be better used as a hotel. So he decided to turn it from a pilgrimage lodging area to an actual hotel restaurant. Le Relais des Remparts and the end of the Ramparts. And that also did not go well at all. And the last one and the most dramatic one was he decided to work with the people who ran the bird park. Now, there's two parks, animal parks. There's the monkey park and the bird park. The bird park kind of works with Rocamadour's medieval theme a little bit better because, you know, falconry, there's, you know, there are images of birds of prey in medieval Europe. It works well. So he decided that they would work together and create a multimedia spectacular called Dimoi Falco, Tell Me Falco. And Falco was a thousand-year-old falcon who had lived throughout the entirety of Rocamadour's history and was telling a small child about the pilgrimage. And it was going to have, um, part of it would be a movie, part of it would be live music, part of it was live actors, and then, of course, live birds from um, the Falcon Park or the Eagle's Rock. And when I was out there in around 2003, this had just started to fall apart. Uh, the first summer it was supposed to run, it was running late. The actors who had been hired were not paid. And um, by the time 20 or 2005 or so ran came around, um, a number of things had happened. <laughs> Number one, is this priest had actually been arrested for fraud for um, moving money from one source to another, kind of shuffling accounts to make this spectacular idea work. Um, Number two, when the show actually happened, it didn't get a lot of people. It was supposed to bring celebrities. It was supposed to bring heads of state. It was supposed to make people stay at Rokumdor overnight. Um, And then the third one was the bishop came in, a new bishop, and said, this 
place is losing money. This is not good. And so he shut down every business that the diocese ran at Rocamador, um, aside from the pilgrimage store that I mentioned. And so tourists, um, they used to do tours of the churches. That was shut down. They, the museum was shut down. Um, the business of uh, the Inn of the Ramparts was shut down and the restaurant. And so massive layoffs happened. I mean, it wasn't, there's not that many people there, but a large percentage of the people who worked there, most of the diocesan employees were laid off. <clears throat> the one priest ended up in jail for fraud for several months. And by the time I was there in the mid 2000s, I really saw Roque Maduro fall into kind of a economic depression, which France was experiencing in general then too. But it was really telling how much it hit that area. And then when I came back with a student um, in the next decade, a new priest who I had actually seen been um, ordained as a deacon, I call him Father Tristan in the book, he had taken over and he was very conservative in a lot of ways, very charismatic. And um, he sort of was returning Rocamador to Vatican, you know, pre-Vatican II days with, um, how do I put this? For instance, when people take communion, it used to be they would take communion directly into their mouth rather than into their hands. And then with Vatican II, it became more common to take it into your hands and give it to yourself. Um, when he would conduct mass, he would put it directly into people's mouths. It was sort of like returning to the old fashioned days. He also was of uh, nobility, um, which in France isn't supposed to make a difference, but everybody knew he was of noble blood and talked about it a lot. And um, he was handsome and funny and charismatic and knew social media brilliantly and managed to put Rocamadour on the map again in terms of a pilgrimage site. And Rocamadour has an annual cheese festival. And this cheese festival, um, back in 2006 or so, they decided to have sort of a religious festival or a religious thing alongside it where they would bless the, the flock of goats. And, and lead them through as sort of a transhuman mock-up kind of thing. And then you would follow the goats out to the cheese festival. And it was very cute, but they did it down in the canyon so it wouldn't bother tourism. It was sort of like, we're doing a religious ceremony, a but we're going to put it in the away from where people can see it. And when Father Tristan took over, he put it across the street, basically from the path to the, the cheese festival where the parking was. So here he was having this, uh, the same festival blessing the goats, but it was a very religious festival in view of all these secular cheese tourists, cheese tourism is the thing. And um, it, they were blessing the goats, but they were also, you know, kneeling on the ground and taking communion. And it was just this very, hey, this is a religious site. And of course, he put stuff about it on social media. So <clears throat> he was really um, sifting the way that religion was being, it, it was no longer being hidden. It was no longer capitulating to tourism. It was something that was asserting itself very strongly. Like this is a religious site. This is a sacred site. And I noticed that it um, kind of seemed to follow patterns in France and Europe overall with a return to sort of conservatism, uh, a return to nationalism. And so I talk about that in the book as well. And then, of course, the, the mystery that I still haven't resolved, which is in just the last few years, um, he had been brought to Pau to be a religious leader there in the diocese, which was 
quite a promotion. And then was pulled. Um, and nobody, as far as, I mean, I'm sure somebody does, but the general public was not informed what happened so that he was no longer fit to do math, provide math. And nobody really knows where he's living now. And there's an entire, there are groups on social media that are just focused on where is he in an almost obsessive way where people will greet him on his birthday and talk about, you know, that he's the true face of the church. And there's some anti-Pope comments on the same thing. So it's become this very political forum where he's become almost a conservative hero that's been suppressed. And I'm very interested to see um, what happens with that. But I figured with COVID, it was a good way to wrap up the book. And I gave you a very long answer to your question. (laughs) Sorry. I appreciate the long answer. I think talking through the changes and what you have observed over time is important to any pilgrimage site. And then also this tension between pilgrimage and tourism and how that shifts. And you've been a witness to that for, for many years. And now I'm curious also about the priest. I might have to go find uh, this cult following and start looking into it myself. So what other projects are you working on now? Uh, I know that you're the kind of crux of your work at this point is around space tourism and space pilgrimage. And I definitely want to have you uh, return for a a second uh, episode about this work. Uh, But where can people find you? What are you up to now? Um, Well, my website is dinaweibel.space. And it sounds easy, but Dina and Weibel are both complicated. Dina is Dean with an A on the end, D-E-A-N-A. And then Weibel with no space in between is W-E-I-B as in book, E-L as in Larry, for lack of a better word, um, dot space because it was available. And I've been really interested in how people involved in space exploration um, understand their religious beliefs when they have them. They don't always have them in relation to their understanding of space. I feel like both space, it's so much bigger than the earth, but the way we understand it is this liminal liminal place, right? Where it's not really a place, it's sort of out there, it's sort of hard to envision. And then religion is the same kind of thing where both space exploration and religion are trying to find out similar answers, like where are we, why are we here, who else is there? Um, And we use similar words, we talk about the ethereal, we talk about the otherworldly, we talk about the unearthly, um, to describe both religious and um, space categories. This started when I moved to Michigan to work at Grand Valley. I met my husband, who was a former uh, former NASA historian, and peppered him with questions about stuff I'd heard about, you know, astronaut rituals and things. He arranged for me to interview a retired astronaut. And this was, I didn't even have IRB clearance. It was just one of those, like, I had the opportunity. So I did it. And then 10 years later, was getting IRB clearance. But um, this astronaut was an evangelical Christian whose entire experience going into space was infused um, by his religious beliefs. He was an engineer. He talked about seeing the earth from space and how God was a master engineer and he was seeing the earth from God's perspective. He talked about um, staying in touch with his Sunday school class from space. He referred to uh, the, the space station he was on as God's great cathedral. 
And so it was really fascinating to me. And it was one of those things where it's kind of like picking up a rock and you think there might be something underneath and then there's a lot. Um, not a lot of people have looked into this before. And it turns out that a lot of at least the American space program, including people who send probes out into space, including astronauts, including engineers, even people in um, privatized space, are motivated by religious beliefs, at least to some point, and do have this very strong curiosity about the universe that kind of ties in with religious curiosity. So in 2019, just before COVID, fortunately, I was able to take a sabbatical where I did ethnographic field work in um, a number of places, including the Kennedy Space Center, the um, Johnson Space Center. I was at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for a bit. I went to the Mojave Air and Space um, Port and interviewed people in private space there. Um, but the kind of most intense thing, and I thought this was funny because I lived with nuns in Rocamador. I went and I lived for a month with the priests at the Vatican Observatory. And it was that was really fun. I tried to learn Italian ahead of time, but they use English as the main language, so my Italian never went anywhere. But following them around, uh, shadowing them, um, learning about their artifacts, which are a blend of religious and space artifacts, which is fascinating, and talking to them in interviews and finding out just how much their religious understandings of extremely difficult concepts in space connect to each other. And I have to say with them, and then I also did research um, at, there's a couple, there's an annual event that NASA does for people in human um, space research, and they're mostly in the medical field. But being with the Vatican astronomers and with people who do space medicine, I had to keep my brain, like, to have those interviews, you had to at least understand something of what was going on there and keep up with them. And those were really brilliant people to talk to and fascinating ways of understanding um, their perspective on both religion and space. The last question I have for you is how has your work over time changed you personally? What what has been kind of some of the characteristics that you have found, even from a psychological standpoint, or maybe a spiritual standpoint as well, uh, that have shifted or grown or evolved uh, throughout the course of your career? That's an interesting question. Um, I've always sort of placed my own perspective firmly in the agnostic camp, which is kind of how I was raised. <laughs> so I have that. Um, but it also is really good for doing field work because when you're talking to people about their beliefs, if you at least have a part of you that says, this is possible, I think this is possible, then that's, uh, people kind of sense that. It's, if you're talking to somebody about their beliefs and you're like, no, you're an idiot, that's not going to come across well. Um, and then being able to shift with somebody who might be there to worship the goddess or somebody who thinks that you know, the still small voice of Quakerism is why we're exploring space. Um, but that ability to sort of be almost chameleon-like, but not insincerely chameleon-like, if that makes any sense. So I'm always very curious about people's religious beliefs. Um, I think the more that I've learned about space, the more I've been open to ideas that come from theoretical physics, 
so I am much more interested now in the potential of, you know, multiverses. I'm much more interested now in the potential of um, it being, you know, a, a program, like an illusion, which is interesting because it takes you back to Buddhism. And it's like, huh. So I think a lot of that has kind of shifted my perspective. Um, I definitely think I'm more willing to go into space now than I would have been previously because I've spent so much time in my imagination there and talking to people about it. And so that's the frustrating thing. I've been to Rocamadour and I know a lot of pilgrimage sites in France and U.S. but and Nepal. <laughs> There's a few but to to talk so much to people about space, especially astronauts, um, and to not have the opportunity to go there, it's very frustrating. I mean, I know as a pilgrimage person, you probably know a lot about Mecca, but unless you're Muslim, you can't go to Mecca. So there's that kind of idea that there's this forbidden place that so many people are drawn to that you can't enter. And so I think on some level, um, that fascinates me. I can't say that I've come up with any great religious revelations that, you know, now I know this to be the truth. I, I'm still just really trying to keep my mind open with what people tell me and understand their view. Thank you so much for talking uh, with me about your work and about your enthusiasm and about your fascination and curiosity uh, for experiences that have to do with, I think, what's above us. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what's out there, what is beyond kind of the horizon, it seems like has really been a, a motivating factor for why you've chosen the particular sites that you have uh, studied in depth and the people that you have interviewed in depth. Um, I look forward to having the opportunity to talk to you again uh, about, about the space pieces. Uh, I, I'm aware of some of the publications that you have recently published as well as our publishing in the near future. And so uh, I'd like to, to chat more about that at some point. Sure. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter and Facebook, or by email info at meaningfuljourneys.net or our website www.meaningfuljourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.